The following message is made available for you by Emanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emanuelmora.com. All right. Well, I'd like to thank Dave Sawyer. I saw him a second ago. And the rest of the worship team for leading our congregation last week while I was away. So last weekend, um, some of our, a bunch of our youth and a few of our leaders and some folks from uh, Trio Church uh, joined, uh, we joined together and we went up to the Boundary Waters. And so we had a wonderful time experiencing God's glorious creation. You know, it's so beautiful and serene up there. It was really great. Uh, we also experienced <laughs> a bit of its brutality, right? Nature can be a, a harsh thing sometimes. You know, we, we'd have our canoes and our, and our backpacks. Uh, and we traveled 26 miles. Tony must be here somewhere. There, yes, Tony. Uh, so it was at 26 miles. I counted 11 lakes and nine portages. Okay, it's something like that. Uh, and a couple of rivers. One of them was called Dead River, and uh, that was uh, a lot of fun, that one. And we've got a map for you, just so you can see what we went through. There you go. So I, that doesn't show up real well, but uh, there's, yeah, there you go. You can see the, the route we took. And uh, some of us got to hike with sort of 70-pound packs of gear on our backs, and then you put a canoe on top of that, and then you hike through the woods. And one of them was maybe three-quarters of a mile, and a couple were about a half a mile. But, uh, you know, and some of us aren't as young as we used to be, you know. Um, I'm talking about the other guys, of course, not myself. Uh, and so we'd do that. We'd, we'd do these portages, and then we'd paddle on to uh, the next portage, and uh, when you're in the sun, of course, it was a nice sunny weather, and I think we're mid to upper 80s as we were camping. And so, you know, we'd sort of bake in the sun. We'd get burned and sweaty, and, and I actually love it. You know, it was a lot of fun. By the end of the day, you're, uh, you're good and worn out, and resting at the camp feels amazing. A lot of us brought hammocks that we could uh, relax in. But I did have my moments. It sort of takes you to this mental place of, you know, how did I get here? <laughs> Why am I doing this? Um, and uh, in fact, there was one portage that was basically uphill. And I don't know how that works. You know, lakes are supposed to be at the bottom of a hill, not the top. Uh, but we're going uphill, and you're huffing and puffing and climbing. And uh, you sort of get into this mental place, and, and you're wondering, you know, you feel the weight bearing down. Your legs get tired. Your shoulders start to ache. You're trying to get suck in enough oxygen, you know, to power the machine up the hill. And, uh, you know, you wonder, do I have enough strength? Do I have enough energy? And then, thankfully, you know, eventually you catch a glimpse of open water, you know, the lakes in front of you. And then suddenly life is great and, and you move on. And a, a trip to the boundary waters like this, you know, you can't help but think about how the adventure, how the journey that you're on is a lot like life. You know, there's, we have ups and we have downs. You know, we make our plans, but then there's surprises. Uh, we have a time to work and we have a time to rest. And sometimes the burdens of life, uh, they seem like they're more than we can bear, right? And we look for some kind of relief from, from the load that we carry. Uh, I don't think this changes from, from our youth to our old age. Now, the world will offer us all sorts of solutions uh, to the burdens of life. 
you know, there's a lot of practical advice out there about uh, how to make it. And there's some foolish advice out there, too. And, of course, there's some really bad advice on how to cope with the burdens of life. But there's one thing we can say about all the possible solutions the world offers us uh, to the burdens that we carry, and that's none of those solutions ultimately work, right? The world offers us a way through life uh, where we don't ultimately find rest for our souls. But thankfully, we worship and we serve a gracious God who does offer us rest. He offers us rest for our souls, not only in this world, but also in the world to come, in the age to come. So, with that in mind, let's, uh, let's turn to Matthew 11. Uh, if you have your copy of God's uh, perfect word with you, let's turn there, and we'll read verses 25 through 30. Let me read it for you here. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray together. Father, we thank and praise you for this opportunity to open your word today, to look at uh, the good news according to Matthew, uh, where Jesus is uh, speaking of uh, burdens and rest. And I pray that we might uh, take his words to heart, that we might know you more and seek to make you known as a result of this. Uh, Father, be with us now. Amen. Well, our passage today, Matthew 11, it comes on the heels, comes at the end of Jesus chastising or condemning the unrepentant cities, the, the, the hard-hearted cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida. And uh, this sets the stage for what Jesus has to say about the so-called wise and uh, the wise ones and the children in our passage. Now, I like to imagine what it would be like in the first century living in the region of Galilee, and Jesus would travel through these towns, and I try to imagine what it would be like hearing Jesus proclaim the truth to share the wisdom of God. He would call people to repentance. He would offer them salvation and healing, and some people would simply, you know, turn up their nose, like, well, I don't think I need any of that. I think I'm good. You know, I actually, don't, I actually don't have any real problems, personally. I mean, nothing that I can't take care of, right? I'm a pretty good person. I'm pretty competent, you know? So when Jesus, when Jesus calls out to me to repent, I don't think I, I, don't think I need to, really. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine that, right? I'm uncomfortable even, like, saying those words. And I don't think that's that much different from today. People, uh, we see this all the time. Folks will hear the truth of the gospel, and they'll think, hmm, well, I mean, there's no real need. I mean, I hear what you're saying, but I think I'm good where I'm at, you know. People become satisfied with their own wisdom. They become satisfied with their own abilities, and they don't really see the need for a Savior. 
And that's like these towns in Galilee, Chorazin and Bethsaida that Jesus chastised. He condemned them for their unrepentant hearts. They wouldn't turn away from their sin. So here in our passage, in Matthew 11, Jesus offers his response to these folks. And what does he do? He praises God. Right? He praises God the Father for his divine character. He praises God for revealing the truth to those who are humble. And he praises God for hiding the truth from those who are proud and unrepentant. And so our first lesson for today from this passage is that God has hidden. God is hidden from the proud, but he is revealed to the humble. God is hidden from the proud, but he is revealed to the humble. So let's look again here at verses 25 and 26. Uh, we read, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Of course, these people that he mentions as wise, they're not truly wise, right? They're wise in their own eyes. And those who ultimately see God, well, they're not only, they're not exactly children either, right? Rather, their faith in God is immediate and trusting, like a child who trusts his mother or father. And so the message here uh, sounds a lot to me like James chapter 4, verse 6. Right, where James quotes from Proverbs and he says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And of course, in my mind, when Scripture says things like this, they just sort of ring true the first time you hear it. Like the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Just hearing this, we know it's true. And the idea that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, I think we know this in a fundamental way, to be true. There's a logic to it. It's a profound truth. You know, of course, the proud and the arrogant have trouble understanding or seeing who God is. And of course, they won't repent of their sin because they're proud and they're arrogant. Uh, they can't see past their own selfishness. And of course, God reveals himself to those who are humble, to those who are weak. They're broken. They're ready to receive God's mercy. These folks know their own, uh, their own need for God better than anybody else does. And so we've got pride or humility, and we've got false wisdom or childlike faith, or we've got selfishness on the one hand or selflessness on the other. And these are the possible heart conditions that we have before us today. And these are great opportunities for us to consider where we're at, sort of in this spectrum between pride and humility, wisdom, uh, false wisdom and faith, selfishness and selflessness. Have we become satisfied in our own abilities, right? Do we look to ourselves first when we come across a, a, a challenge in our life, when we come across difficulty? Or maybe life has humbled us. Do we realize that the sin that will undo us, it's not lurking somewhere out there in the evil world that we see on the news every day that angers us. The sin that will undo us is found within our own hearts, right? That's the most dangerous sin. And those with a childlike faith see this and they turn from it and they turn to their God 
And this is what Jesus is talking about. So that's my prayer for all of us, that God's creating within us a heart that's humble and is ready to turn from sin and receive the grace of God. You know, Ezekiel says, uh, uh, or God speaks through Ezekiel, says, I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Uh, That's my prayer for us today. So let's look at our next verse here, verse 27. Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Okay, so our second lesson from this passage is that divine wisdom can only be found through Christ. And uh, hopefully you're familiar with this passage and you've read through it before. Um, when I've read through it in the past, this, this verse confuses me. It seems a little bit out of place. Uh, of course it's not. <laughs> God's word is perfect and it's for us. Uh, and we should become students of it. But it might seem out of place to some of us. You know, Jesus was speaking about the proud and the unrepentant who haven't seen God and the humble who have. And now why is Jesus speaking about himself? as the only one who truly knows God and the only one who is truly known by God. Well, to put it in John's language, the gospel according to John, Jesus is, in fact, he is the word of God. Right? It's Jesus who communicates the truth of who God is and what he has done. Or to put it in the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians, Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus knows the very mind of God. And it's only through Christ that we receive true knowledge of who God is. So for those who see God, who truly see God, they see God through Christ, through him. He is the mediator. So in one sentence here, in in verse 27, Jesus makes a claim about himself that's really absolutely extraordinary. And if he's right, if this claim is true, we should fall on our knees. And look to Christ as our only hope of salvation. And if it's not true, then Christ is speaking blasphemy, right? And he should be condemned. And this is why C.S. Lewis says that Jesus Christ is either a Lord, a liar, or a lunatic, right? He's got to be one of those. He can't be in between. There's many people who think, well, Jesus was a nice guy who said nice things, and can't we just be nice? That's That's really what Jesus was all about. But he said things like this. The, God can only be known through Christ, truly be known through Christ. Uh, it's an extraordinary claim. So in this verse, Jesus declares that he is the exclusive source of all divine knowledge. And you can only receive this divine knowledge if Jesus chooses to reveal it to you. It's really a wonderful truth. But it's also sobering and a little terrifying that Christ is is not revealed to all. Not all people do repent and turn towards God. And that uh, breaks my heart. Well, let's move along and look at our next couple of verses here together. Verses 28 uh, through 30. Jesus writes, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All right, is Nicholas in here? No. Uh, I wonder if little children know what a yoke is. <laughs> Not the egg yolk, right? That's spelled with an L, isn't it? Um, but, you know, this language of yoke, you know, these days, we, we're not agricultural, agricultural anymore. My dad grew up on a farm, and maybe some of you did. Certainly your grandparents probably did. Uh, but we're not farming people anymore. We live after the Industrial Revolution took over. And so a lot of the Bible's language is agricultural, and, and we have to learn what it means. And in case you're unaware, a yoke, of course, is a bar of wood that's fashioned. It's designed to rest upon the shoulders of, we think of it for animals, like, an, like a pair of oxen having a yoke on them. But in the ancient world, people would have yokes, right? Maybe you need to haul buckets of water, or you would have a yoke for your animal to pull the plow through the field. Um, in any case, it, it, it's a metaphor for the burdens that we carry. And that's how Jesus refers to it here. And we all, we're all familiar with that. The burdens of life, they do weigh us down. Uh, if they're not weighing you down now, they might soon weigh you down. Now, in first century Judaism, if you wanted to convert to the Jewish faith, if you wanted to find salvation, it was necessary for you to accept the yoke of the Torah or the yoke of the law. Uh, another phrase that the rabbis would use would be the yoke of the commandments. You would wear this upon your shoulders in a way, and this is the burden that you would carry. Now, in the days of the New Testament, the Pharisees were very active in creating laws that were additional to the Bible. And from their perspective, they were protecting the biblical laws. They called it building a fence around the law. Um, but from the Christian perspective, uh, this often led to legalism. It was an un unhealthy thing. And in fact, the New Testament condemns uh, this sort of legalism. In Acts 15, we have sort of the first major council that the, the church at large ha held. <clears throat> they call it the Jerusalem Council, usually. And in that council, there was a conflict between Jewish Christians who would observe the law, right? There were dietary laws and um, Sabbath laws and uh, things that they would observe. And then there were Gentile Christians uh, who liked to eat pigs. You know, they loved, they loved bacon, right? I am thoroughly Gentile in my love of bacon, right? Um, and uh, so, but there was a conflict, and, and in this conflict, in Acts 15, 7, Peter stands up, and he addresses the council, and he says, uh, uh, we, we read here in, in verse 7, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up, and he said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my, that by my mouth, the, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Right, so Peter in this passage, he's saying the yoke of the law was, was unbearable. They couldn't live up to the expectations of the law, and the law could not bring them salvation. It was only through God's grace that they could find that. And uh, similar language is used by Paul in his, in his great letter to the Galatians. 
after describing the failure of the law, which can only enslave us, it cannot save us, Paul declares, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The law cannot save us. The law can only show us what's right and what's wrong. It cannot give us the desire for what's good. It can't give us the ability to do what's good. But it can condemn us for our failures. And guess what? <laughs> the law's not wrong. I mean, we do fail. I sort of find myself saying this all the time, you know, that people, man, they are the worst. Uh, when you're driving down the road or you hear stories of how people treat each other, it's just sort of how we are. And even though this message is central to the gospel message, we often forget it. Of course, we, often, we don't think about Old Testament law so much. I mean, as Christians, we sort of know, yes, that's the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, and we're free from that in a sense. But uh, in our country, we love laws. I mean, our nation has more laws than it ever has had. Um, do we have a problem with drugs in our country? Yes, we do. You know, making drugs illegal hasn't fixed our drug problem at all. It's as bad now as it has ever been. And there's more laws protecting us from the use of drugs than ever. But of course, they can't change a human heart. And so the law doesn't fix the problem. Do we have a problem with gun violence in our country? Yes, we do. Uh, the shootings that I hear about are uh, heartbreaking. And guess what? It was illegal to bring a gun into that area. It's illegal to murder somebody with a gun, of course. Um, but the laws, they don't, they don't stop that. Uh, how about reckless driving, right? Uh, oh, if only we had laws that made speeding illegal. You know, we would be so much better off. Well, we do, and they don't work. The laws can't fix anything. They don't fix a darn thing. The Old Testament laws, the Ten Commandments, the, the most amazing set of laws the world has ever seen, still can't fix us. It can't solve us. The evil that will undo this nation, the evil that will undo your life, it exists within your heart. It exists within my heart. And the law can't fix that. I study God's word, and uh, I know the, the sin that's in my heart. And I turn from it, and I turn to, towards God and ask that he might do a work within me and give me the desire and the strength because when we are weak, he is strong. Uh, and that's where it's at. So if the yoke of the law is a burden that we cannot bear and it can't save us, what does Christ call us to do? These verses here are just remarkable. Let's read them again. In verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Throughout my life, I've, whenever I come across this passage, I always feel like, you know, he's speaking right to me, you know. Like, uh, life does come with burdens. It's difficult. And yet the, the rest that he offers us, like Paul talks about the peace that passes understanding. Of course, our life doesn't become perfect and like, you know, some uh, Hallmark commercial where everything's great, you know. That's not how life is. And the Bible certainly doesn't talk that way, but it does talk about a peace and a rest that is a gift from God. 
in the middle of the chaos of your life, and it's from above, and it is better than anything. Uh, Coming to Christ, submitting to Christ, brings rest. Resting in God is something that all of us desire in the deepest way. And instead of being exhausted through our slavery to the law or slavery to sin, Christ offers us his rest, his peace. Now, he calls us to learn from him. The humble who have been broken find the burden of Christ light. His yoke is easy to carry. One translation says that his his yoke is kind. The Greek word is often translated as kind. Uh, Now, don't get me wrong. We're not free from responsibility, right? It's not, uh, we don't put our feet up and uh, open the bag of chips and watch Netflix for eternity. Uh, That would be terrible if it were that way, although some of us would uh, maybe desire that on one level. But we're called to learn from Christ. Even in this passage, he, he asks something of us, to learn from him. We're called to keep his commands. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So we have a role to play in all of this. However, he has fulfilled the requirements of the law that is such a burden. He bears the burden that we cannot bear. That which we could not do, he has done. And we must follow him. He's the only one who's capable of saving us. He paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. And praise the Lord that he's done that for us. So when following Christ, we rest in him. We trust in him. Now, how do you do this? Right? What does it look like? Uh, we say things in church sometimes like, well, trust in Christ. Well, I'll, that sounds amazing. I want to do that. And so where, where do I do that? Is there a location where this happens? Um, how do you trust in Christ and find rest? And I think of it in very simple terms. And I think that's how, what the Bible teaches us. We turn away from our sin. We repent of sin and we turn towards God. We learn from Christ through the study of his word. He's given us his scripture to learn of him. And that requires that we engage our brains. We become students of Christ, right? That's what disciple means. We become disciples of Christ, and we learn from him. We spend time in prayer. We bring our concerns before him. We ask him for wisdom that we might grow. We spend time with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we enjoy our fellowship together. We encourage one another. Right, I love the, the half an hour we have before here. Of course, that's a very short amount of time, but it's just one glimpse into the function of the body where we connect and we encourage, we pray for one another. We also sharpen one another, as Proverbs says, as iron sharpens iron. And we spend time together as a body, worshiping God, lifting up his name. Right? These are ways that we can turn towards Christ and rest in him. So let me just share our, our, our three lessons for today from, from Matthew 11, and I'll pray for us, and then we'll worship again together. So our three lessons for today are, first, that God is hidden from the proud, but he is revealed to the humble. And the second one is that divine wisdom can only be found through Christ. And the last is that the yoke of Christ brings rest for our souls. Let's pray together.